Hello and welcome to episode 18 of Take 18, and what an episode we have today. Take 18 is a podcast where we love to talk about the movies because we love movies. Now this show is produced by the Central Coast Film Society. My name is Daniel Lair, the founder and executive director of the Central Coast Film Society. We have a powerful interview uh, with the crew behind a local documentary called Firestorm 77, and that recounts the firefighters in the 1977 Honda Canyon Fire, which was out on Vandenberg Air Force Base just outside of Lompoc. And it is an amazing story uh, that I personally think is fit for a full feature narrative film uh, as well, because it's just jaw-dropping with all the details of the military and the fire and all the top secret stuff going on and um, just the the tragedy in it as well uh, is just amazing Um, and and I am truly honored and so excited to have these uh, men that will be joining us in just a minute Uh, fantastic film fantastic documentary But before we welcome them on, I just want to make sure to uh, also invite all of you to subscribe to this podcast so that way you can find out whenever we have a new episode come on um, and that uh, you can also catch up on some of our old episodes you may have missed because uh, if you haven't checked them out, I I encourage you to do so because those past podcasts uh, have got some really amazing interviews that I feel are pretty timeless. Um, So whenever you get a chance, just go back and take a listen. It is really amazing stuff. Now, throughout this podcast series, we're going to be looking into movie news and some reviews and also just having these amazing uh, interviews. So speaking of which, um, we're just going to jump right into this interview and give these gentlemen as much time as we can. So let's welcome them on right now. And we are now joined with the crew of Firestorm 77. Gentlemen, how are you? We have Chris Height, Dennis Ford, and Joseph Valencia here. Good morning. Morning, Daniel. Good, Good morning. morning. Thank, thank you guys so much for being here. And um, I, I have to say, I was able to watch the documentary, um, and you guys did an amazing job, uh, both um, you know behind the camera, getting this made, uh, and also um, Dennis and Joe, you guys were actually there. And um, it just we're going to get into it, and it, it just blows my mind what, what you guys went through. Um, back in 1977 out there in the Honda Canyon. Um, just absolutely amazing. So um, I, I just want for everyone to know, let's just talk about what your backgrounds are and, and, and kind of what led you to here right now. So Chris, let's start with you. What, 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 where are you from? What's your background? What's your role in all of this? Sure. Well, I'm originally from Pennsylvania, and I've been living on the beautiful Central Coast for the past 15 years and working as a professor of film at Allen Hancock College. And that really sums up my role in this. I was not involved in the 1977 fire. Uh, We talked about this often as a crew, the serendipity of it. When these guys were out fighting a fire, I was most likely pulling my sled up a snow-covered hill in Pennsylvania. And yet our our paths have converged 40-some years later. But in short, I bring the filmmaking into it. I... I, uh, come to it from the professional world of filmmaking and the academic world of film studies. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, and so you are the producer, co-director and co-editor and, and Dennis, you are also a producer, director and editor on this as well. So tell us a little bit about your background. Well, I'm a first time, uh, director, producer and editor. Um, I'm a, I, you know, I was a GI, uh, you know, um, in the service in 1977 to 1981, and I got uh, thrown into this fire that we'll be discussing. Um, and, you know, I finished that up and then went into a pretty successful career in environmental management. Um, in um, 2015, I retired. 215, I also read Joseph's book, and all this stuff kind of came back at me. Part of the reason it came back at me was I had run into somebody just a few years before that, and it told me the event never occurred. And, um, you know, I was interested in Joe's book. We all knew about it in Lompoc, and I wanted to read it, so I read it. And then, um, you know, again, we use the word serendipity. I, I took a class with... Um, Chris and I said I came up to Chris one day and I said 
I've got a real good idea, you know, for a uh, um, some kind of film. And, uh, you know, I think he hears that a lot, but I, I think he took my hook and went from there with it. Yeah. Wow. Nice. Um, and, and Joe, you are the author of the book. So tell us about your background and, and then getting to the book and, and all that. Oh, okay. Sure. Uh, yes, I was, I'm from Lompoc, California. I grew up here is a idyllic place to grow up. It was kind of like leave it to beaver and, uh, just a wonderful place. I had a great family and, and all, and played sports here in the Lompoc Valley. And when I turned 18, I, I dropped into a fire station, drove up to the fire station 51 and and asked what it took to be a fireman. Uh, I was also taking a class at Allen Hancock College at that time in fire science. And they said, well, we have a reserve program. And and so I became a reserve fireman and also a hotshot that summer. So at the age of 18, I was both a reserve and a hotshot. And of course, we had a really horrific fire season that year. And then, of course, in December, uh, we thought the fire season was all over. And boy, once more, nature nature put on a show with those winds and the fire. And, and I was called out to that fire with the, the strike team at Santa Barbara County. And um, it stayed with me ever since. And I wrote about it once uh, in a firsthand account. And then I wrote about the whole book, uh, the whole story in Beyond Tranquion Ridge. And um, and so we used many of those people that I interviewed from back in 2001 uh, to uh, to, uh, in our film. So it's it was very helpful and very, uh, very eye opening to um, be with Dennis and and Chris in in this uh, in, in this film. So what was what was your inspiration behind wanting to write this? What was your motivation? Well, I wanted to tell the whole story. I was driving to work one day, and um, I had already written a firsthand account, but um, my inspiration was to tell the story for the whole community and and for everyone in the fire service, uh, for maybe training, and for one, I thought that I could uh, maybe get over this. I think I carried a lot of baggage for a long time, and I, I was successful in the first two, but the third one... I realized you can't really get over something. It stays with you the rest of your life, but you just learn to deal with it much better, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, and and by writing it and getting the interviews, how often do you guys stay in contact with all the other firefighters and, and personnel that were on the fire? Uh, go ahead, Dennis or Chris. Uh, well, you know, we've, uh, we've communicated with them and now because of uh, social media, we're communicating, you know, more and more, you know, by Facebook and such, email, that type of thing, um, you know, since the interviews, which were done in 218. Yeah. And and so tell me. Uh, I would say even. Go, go um, ahead. I was just going to add in there that uh, even, I guess, somewhat the pandemic adds kind of a line of demarcation where we were much more face to face with these guys on a regular basis because we were we were doing kind of rough cut screenings and, you know, really trying to elicit their opinion on what we were putting together. But uh, the pandemic kind of curtailed that somewhat. But it's, as Dennis mentioned, it's really become more of a social media level of contact, but still a great level of contact amongst all those involved. So that's that's a really interesting um, thing. So you really wanted to get their input on what you were doing and making this piece as uh, authentic as, as possible. Yeah, I think we felt a responsibility yeah. to them in that regard. We, you know, so it, it's it's really, you know, there's two purposes. There's to educate the general public and inform them of these events, which feel almost forgotten uh, up to this moment when we started doing this production. But at the same time, these individuals involved, and I think you get a sense of how magnanimous this is in their lives. You, you get a sense that this was something that really altered, changed their perspective on life. Uh, they went through something that was uh, a, a trying experience that the majority of people never experienced. And so we felt we had a real responsibility to, to ensure that they were comfortable with what we were doing. And uh, to be fair, you know, they're, most of them are, have no familiarity with the filmmaking process. So they were, 
you know, they were willing participants, but they, they needed to have a lot of faith and trust in us as well. And we wanted to establish that relationship. And you see, I think that's amazing that even though they aren't filmmakers, you know, they don't have filmmaking backgrounds, they don't have that, that general, uh, you know, those skills, they still are able to find a way to get that story out through you guys and, and make sure that everything is accurate. Everything is, is the way to be. And, and, it's kind of like what Joe was saying to make this like a training almost for all the new guys that are going to be coming in because you want to make sure that, you know, the tragedy that happened out there never happens again. Um, and, and I think that this uh, documentary is a, is a crucial tool in, in making sure that something like that happens or never happens again. Um, what was the, uh, what was the actual moment that, that, that you just knew that you had to make this into a, uh, a film, a documentary film instead of just a book? Was it, was it during the classes at Allen Hancock college? Well, so no, it was a few years before that. I'm, uh, you know, I'm working in Santa Maria and I, I talked to a friend of mine in another office building and he, uh, indicated to me that, uh, you know, um, you know, I started to talk about it. He indicated to me that uh, this fire never happened, that it was, uh, you know, that I was making up <laughs> I, can, I can only imagine the look on your face. Yeah, I, I, I was slightly perturbed. Um, but as the years went by, I got more and more angry about it. Yeah. And again, I retired in 215 and read Joe's book. And then, you know, we, we, we kind of, again, serendipity led us all together. But I think the real answer is when, I, when we were talking to these people, uh, people that we were interviewing you knew that they had gone through something terrible and yet it was forgotten um you know and i i like to say that um they were forgotten by their local communities and they were heroes and so it was a sense of they wanted to come to us and tell us their stories you know essentially before they passed away mm. so this wouldn't be forgotten so when you start to put that all together, it's like, oh my gosh, we've got to get this done and we've got to do this right. So you had a real sense of just trying to capture the actual firsthand accounts for, for just history, for, you know, just to make sure that you had that. And, you know, in respect to the interviewees, um, they wanted to tell us their stories. So they were very open and communicated with us. It, it was though they were attempting to get something off their chest. Yeah. <clears throat> Um, and, and, you know, that's kind of a, it's almost similar, you know, for military, uh, you know, personnel coming back and talking about their experiences, you know, there's a lot of that almost, uh, PTSD, um, you know, element there and just being able to talk and get through is, uh, you know, it, it's, it's helpful. It's, it, it, you know, it really is. Um, so how did the interview process actually work with these guys? Were, were everybody all together in one room? Um, who was, who was doing the interviewing, who was doing, asking the questions and things like that? Well, this so... is Chris, uh, that was Dennis was, at, was our interviewer. Uh, I was handling the cinematography duties of, of lighting and camera. Uh, we had a, a wonderful, uh, camera operator named Curtis Yap, who also helped us out on set a lot, but we interviewed each one of these individuals separately. So we scheduled their interviews, uh, on different, at, according to their schedule, and just to to kind of ride off of what Dennis was saying about their forthcomingness and willingness to be involved, I mean, we had we had participants who they were all part of this event here on the Central Coast in 1977, but their lives since have taken them, and in some instances, at a great distance away. So we had members who came from out of state to participate in these interviews, wow. and again, I think that shows you the power of this staying with them throughout their lives. Yeah, absolutely. And and so Dennis, when you were there asking those questions, um what was it like to basically relive all these events again 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 with each one of these guys? Well, I have to tell you, I I came to tears several times when I was interviewing them. You know, we didn't we didn't want to talk because we were taping and I would talk to them because I couldn't help it. So it was very 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 emotional. Um to talk to them and to get them to tell you this type of stuff that's been hidden, you know, for over four decades. Sure. Um, and then to, to answer maybe another part of the question, the latter part of the documentary is about going out to Vandenberg and having everybody um, meet together 
um, and then going out to the sites where the activity actually occurred. And the real interesting thing about that is those uh, gentlemen um, waited when we weren't, you know, having camera in hand and they went and apologized to each other for some of the things that occurred, you know, 43, 44 years ago. Um, so again, yeah, it, it's a very emotional thing. And, you know, there was tears shed and, and that type of thing all through the process and including my own. Yeah. And, and what was that like for, for you guys, for, um, Dennis and, and Joe, when, when everybody got back together? Cause that, that was a very powerful part of the film is when you see everybody, you know, in that classroom setting, uh, talking about their experiences and then going out onto the location and, and seeing those crosses out there. Um, it's a very powerful, uh, memorial as to, you know, the lives lost, but not just that, but just what you guys went through. How was that actually being out there again? Well, we had had, this is Joe, we had had staff rides before going out there, but this was the first time we we brought in all the, many of the people that were there and it, it, it really showed with the emotion and it hit us hard. We got to see the ground again that we were at and where many things occurred, many fire overruns occurred and and people were killed and, and also of course and, and it shows with with the film that um, it brought out uh, emotion but also a great gratitude that we're here, we were we're we're talking about it and I think there was a sense of relief. Uh, this film I think is helpful in that uh, in that whole PTSD thing for people to talk about it to get it out and um, and I for me that was just a powerful moment. And I, I want to add something else to that. There was um, um, a respect for those who died. It was still very very strong. You know, that their presence was felt. I mean, again, we're talking almost four and a half decades later. Mm-hmm. So that that kind of came up through the whole thing um, as well. Um, those people were not forgotten. But I want to be careful and say they were not forgotten by the people that were there. You know, the communities have forgotten them, which, you know, I, I think is not too good. Well, it, you know, that's part of the target i think of the the documentary is just bringing awareness to it and just keeping yes. it, it on the uh, the front burner so to speak and um yes. so and chris when you were out there i assume you were the one filming the uh going out there on on location was that was that yes. correct yeah and yes. so how was that for you that how was that for you being out there with these guys and you know you you're kind of the outside objective viewer here um taking a look yes. at everything going on how was that well, yeah, this, this whole project had a whole trajectory for me as well, which, again, when we started it, we, we didn't really know. We knew what we wanted to do. We wanted to document these stories. We didn't know it would go to the level it did of involvement, including the staff ride. And so for me, it was definitely an experience of becoming more personally invested in this as I went along with the project, even though I had no direct relationship to these events that occurred. You can't help but feel emotional when you're in that situation and seeing uh, adult men who are basically still struggling with something that happened 40 years earlier in their life. Uh, you just can't help but feel overwhelmed. So it was definitely an emotional experience all around and, and one I'm really glad I, I got to be a part of. And as you mentioned, our hope is to A, help the community to reconcile with this event because it, it does have ramifications even in the modern era. We want to learn from these events and B, to provide a little bit of understanding and hopefully an outlet for those who, who were members of this event and, and let them know that um, it's okay to think about these events in an emotional way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and so, Chris, tell me about uh, some of the audios and visuals that were used, because one of the things that, that really struck me, and, and I, I was trying to think if they were reproduction, but I don't think they were, but hearing the radio calls uh, during, you know, yeah. the first part when it's talking about the, the fire, like, I'm going, oh, my God, are, are these the real calls? Because some of them are just yeah. chilling, absolutely chilling when, you know, they lose contact with the uh, with the cars and you you just, you know, that's just bad. It's just bad news. 
Yes. The, the, the radio transmissions that are heard in the film are all the authentic tapes, and I have to give Dennis and Joe credit for being able to acquire all those materials. And you are correct. It's really chilling material, especially the idea of radio silence when they're expecting to hear a voice come through on the other end, and it doesn't. That, that in itself just speaks volumes as to the terror that was basically uh, in the environment that day that everyone was living with. So uh, the big challenge for us was trying to recreate an event that occurred 40 years earlier. And so archival material like that really helped just because, again, it's of such a dire nature. You just can't help but uh, feel for the people in the situation, even over just an audio track. Uh, and so we tried to match up complementary imagery to to really dramatize further what would have been the experience of someone in that situation. Yeah. And and I'm just like, I try to think about, you know, when you have something, a very specific event, you have a very specific timeline. How do you go around approaching that? Do you literally just lay out this huge timeline of events and just try to plug in the pieces as to where everything falls into place? Like this is where these radio calls come in. This is where this archive footage may be used or, you know, what what is your approach to that? Well, and, and the other guys can jump in on this. This is Chris, but that was our, you know, our biggest challenge as, as filmmakers in constructing this is that we, we had Joe's book to start with, which is a fantastic foundation. Yeah. It is so meticulous in its detail as to what actually occurred. But the chaotic nature of that moment, that morning, revealed to us there were actually so many events occurring in simultaneity that it's almost an impossibility to replicate that in film, which is a very linear medium. You can show what's happening now, and then you can go to show what's happening simultaneously. But we had so many events we would have been juggling. So in a way, our biggest concern was to try and be as faithful to that timeline as possible. In some regards, we were. In other moments, we had to maybe uh, rearrange some of the events. But nonetheless, what it all points to was just a rather chaotic and disorderly uh, series of events that everyone was thrown into that day in 1977. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I wanted to say, you know, as one that was there and trying to explain it to Chris, you know, some four and a half decades later, um, Chris caught the angst of it just wonderfully um he was able to um you know in many ways take us there uh i watched it again probably for the hundredth time and i got tears in my eye this week watching it again so of course i'm emotionally attached to it but i find it interesting a hundred times and i'm still you know getting an emotional reaction um to it but but i think chris did a wonderful job and i wasn't sure that he could so you know mm-hmm. I, now i'm saying that in, in front of you chris um <laughs> i wasn't sure that he could but he did and i think he exceeded my expectations i i feel like i go back every time i i uh, watch it yeah this is joe and i'll, I'll go along it was a uh, even writing about it was difficult like what chris said all the things happening happening simultaneously at different fronts of the fire and during the fire uh, and right after your your mind and your the time is distorted because during the fire you're thinking things are happening so quickly uh but it or and so time is distorted so writing the book i had to really come to grips with uh the timeline of events and, and the linear nature of it. And, um, and I learned by writing about it, about all these different overruns, because everybody focused on the deaths of the, the commander and the fire chief and the assistant chief. I didn't know that all these individual people were overrun by fire in different locations. So what we tried to do is, is put it together in the book and then in the film, we brought it out in a way that the book couldn't do. It showed the raw emotion on these people's faces that Chris captured that the book doesn't really do. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and I think um, the visuals that were used, uh, I think when, especially like using the map and the diagram and showing where things are, um, it really does help because, you know, like you said, it's, it's, there's so much chaos going on. 
that you know even the commanders at the time obviously were not able to follow um but it's the the chaos is what makes that story and um and and that's uh i think really captured well in in those images and those archives so um how much of the uh archives chris were were used versus how much like uh did did you have to go out and film new wildfires just to get that footage or was how much like how much was back then versus now right well there's definitely a qualitative difference in the archival material most of that originated from eight millimeter film or 16 millimeter film and it definitely has a certain quality to it uh, I would say it's it's probably predominantly archival material, but there's certain moments, especially when we're recreating the overruns, that we contracted with other uh, camera operators who were specialists with firefighting footage, yeah. and we acquired footage for them to help recreate those situations. And so the, the archival footage, I think part of what our plan was visually was to definitely lend a certain 70s credibility to it because that would have been the look of the 70s in terms of media. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we wanted to include Walter Cronkite. We wanted to include imagery from the 70s as we were introducing these guys and their, their emergence into the world of Vandenberg and use music and visuals that takes you back to that time, which was a qualitatively different time period than it is now in both in terms of society and firefighting technique. And um, so we, we think that element allows the audience to immerse themselves. Yeah. Um, Dennis and, and Joe, I, I, I kind of had a question for you guys. Um, when, when you guys knew that the, this was the end of the, the drought season just before the fire and, and those winds that you talk about a lot and, and, you know, born and raised here on, on the central coast, I, I know those winds very well, you know, it, it's a, a monster, but, um, how was, did you have any sense that this was going to be different, that, that there was something special about these conditions that were going on? Well, I had, ex- this is Joe. I had experienced uh, that fire season, the Sycamore Canyon fire, uh, and it was a terrible fire that burned uh, in, uh, to over 200 homes in Santa Barbara. It was 800 acres and burned 200 homes. I thought that was it. I didn't think I'd ever see another fire like that. So we went on through the fire season into December. The hotshot crew was disbanded, except for a crew of about eight. And um, the fire, the U.S. Forest Service deemed the fire season over hmm. on December 19th. So this wind event prior to December 20th, right at December 20th, at the, the winter solstice near, is, is nearby, fooled us all. Uh, hmm. There was no weather intelligence. About the only person that really probably had a handle on it was uh, an old... Um, weather reporter from los angeles uh i forgot his name now but dr uh, george dr george fishbeck uh, that's right he probably knew about the high pressure and low pressure winds preceding these three huge winter storms that were coming in so everybody was concentrated on these winter storms that were coming in from the pacific and uh but right before but 24 hours before these winter storms hit the strongest winds of the century hit. And we had no knowledge heading into that fire, what we were really heading into. And um, so that that was my take on that, is that uh, today we have weather conditions and warnings and cautions and everything 24 to 48 hours before an event yeah. happens. Um, on that particular day in 77, uh, no, we knew winter storm was coming in nobody knew that there'd be a a spark that would initiate a fire and an inferno of this nature. Yeah. So, so you did know that the rain would be there or kind of had a sense that there was going to be raining soon. Yes. But uh, there was 24 hours of fire before that rain uh, arrived. And it was, uh, it was pushed by winds that were uh, the strongest, like I said earlier of the century, Bakersfield had, peak winds of 192 miles an hour mm-hmm. and we had a, a anemometer broke on Tranquion Ridge at 117 miles an hour so there's the winds are almost to the point where 
the vehicles are moving doors are getting um, opened and almost pulled out of your hands and uh, and to fight a fire in such a you could fight fire but when it gets the winds get up it's almost like you can't fight it you have to just get out of its way unfortunately we had positioned ourselves in to in a position that that caught us all and um it was uh, you know a series of events that occurred that, yeah. that caused that now uh dennis i had a question for you um because you are a augmented or augmentee firefighter what is that? <laughs> tell tell everybody what that is. I, you know, I think you know, augmentee is a nice term that essentially says if we need you to accomplish something, we'll augment you to go out to that whatever that function is and do it. Uh, you know, my word is gopher, so I'm a gopher. Mm-hmm. So uh, I was a young one striper. Uh, person or maybe two stripes at that time uh, young enlisted person and uh, we were tasked to go out there and fight this fire and when I say we there was about 250 according to Joe's book of us that were told to get on buses and to go out to the front lines of that fire and I, I think if you watch the documentary there's a point where we're all asking ourselves I don't think they're gonna let us do this we don't know anything but of course we were wrong. They they did put a lot of us out mm. on the front lines of the fire. So, uh, you know, we were sent out there. I ended up doing the night fire. I, I believe I was in Honda Canyon. And, you know, I'm looking up at walls of flames with uh, leather gloves on. They did give me leather gloves and a flathead shovel. And that was it, you know. And it's, again, as Joe's talking, it's 80, 90, 100 mile winds at the top of the ridges and you're looking at it thinking boy if that changes direction there's you know this is my end i'm not i'm not going to live through this um and so yeah there was again i don't i'm telling you my story but there's 250 of us out there um contending with this and and i think this is what eventually creates the the hot shots because they realize they can't augment you know people to come out and fight major fires yeah um, you know, and, and another part of the story that I, I found absolutely fascinating, um, because, you know, I, I grew up on a ranch in Los Alamos, not that far away from, from Vandenberg and that area. And, uh, I, I know what goes on out there on the space launch, uh, complexes and, uh, you know, the slicks and, um, there, there's a lot of, shall we say sensitive things out there on Vandenberg Air Force Base. And when, fires are approaching there's a there's a little uh moment in the documentary i loved where you know it was talking about the commanders and almost an intimidating factor of saying you need to stop this fire or you're going to lose 25 miles of california or something to that effect and and that's kind of a a bone chilling kind of uh-oh we really need to make sure that this fire is captured how did you guys like you know there's certain things you can't say but there you know what how do you guys approach things like that in your documentary or your book? Well, this is Chris. I'll start with the the filmmaking end, and these guys can, again, to use the word augmentee, they can augment their experience based <laughs> on that. Uh, it, was, it was pretty apparent that the conflict of cultures was just on the tip of everyone's tongue. Basically, everyone who we interviewed acknowledge that readily right from the bat some were even talking about it before we we started with the the questions proper so that was definitely one of the core conflicts of that day was you have this immense conflagration on this military base and dennis can speak better to the conditions of the time but this was the cold war and so there was a lot as you mentioned Daniel, sensitive material out there. And so the military was torn on whether it wanted you know, its priorities, fighting that fire versus protecting state secrets that they felt could be compromised. Yeah, and, you know, as a young man out there in my 20s, you know, I, I was a farm boy. I joined the service, and all of a sudden I hear about how these people are trying to hurt us, the communists, 
And I, I end up coming to, to Vandenberg, which is a SAC base, which if you know anything about the military, SAC is the top of the heap when it comes to security um, and such. And so we, um, you know, I come to this and it's, it's a, a new culture, you know, and it's, it's all based on fear. And so, you know, um, there was plenty of stories going on about boats just off the, off the beach with, you know, um, the communists, you know, checking out what we were doing at Vandenberg. Um, that was something we talked about a lot. And, you know, they would also give us a lot of security briefings that would talk about, you know, how they had radio transmissions. They were listening to us. And if, if as a local, you'd understand when I'd say I would work a launch out there and I couldn't tell my wife about it or my children, I would just have to go out there and deal with the launch because the launch was critical to our national security at the time. Um, so, yeah, it was a very interesting place to be as a, a Cold War warrior, if I can use that term. Um, and uh, we had to deal with, again, an enemy that didn't exist, but did exist. And so the fire, I don't think, took precedence. I think the security took precedence, and I think that's what we're all seeing here. Yeah, this is Joe. Uh, I'll just say that after the fire, I, I had a three-decades-long three career with aerospace out at Vandenberg. So after the fire, I got to know what's at those launch sites. And there's all kinds of fuels and uh, for rocket propellants and many solid and, and liquid propellants that are super, super dangerous just in their natural state being stored there. Um, now you have a fire uh, raging and coming towards those facilities and those launch complexes. Um, you know, as you could imagine, the military was, you know, had just lost their commander, their fire chiefs. And the fire's heading towards secret space launch complexes on South Vandenberg. Um, yeah, they were very much uh, interested and, and concerned about that. And, of course, they were military. And um, they had a strong security system. There was a, I've never been on a fire where I saw so many M16s and guns. Um, mm. But, you know, we were there to fight the fire and help them. And, and team up with them. And um, in some situations, uh, there was some conflict, obviously. Our cultures were different, civilian agencies versus military uh, agencies. And um, so as you can imagine, there were some, some heated, heated minutes and me meetings that occurred face to face. Yeah, that that's it, it's amazing just to see think of the imagery of, you know, these soldiers with M16s out there. Are and were they like guarding buildings and stuff to make sure that the firefighters weren't going in, or like what was that process about? Yeah, they were guarding uh, facilities uh, which are tops, you know, secret. They launched these satellites into space for the NRO. National Reconnaissance Office, and back then it was secret. Now it's you could look it up on YouTube and Google. It's all there. But um, back there they launched the Corona pro program and uh, these spy satellites and and such uh, to look like, like Chris said, it was during the Cold War, and the Cold War was really kind of us against the Russians. Uh, you know, uh, you know, freedom against communism, and uh, so. This was the, this is where it all, the crux of where everything was for the Air Force, uh, you know, military spy satellites to, to look and look down on the Russians. I hope I'm not just saying anything that isn't already well known. Right. Yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. The, the name is called the Corona. It was the name of the program that they yeah. had out then um, that, you know, was watching over the russians and perhaps other enemies i don't know um as well yeah but writing this is joe but writing about it uh, and doing this with just and i were afraid that uh, hey are we doing anything that's uh we shouldn't be doing and and but everything here is the truth and we think that by getting to the truth it's it's better to understand the lessons learned by you know listen by having the truth of what happened out there yeah were, were you and, oh sorry go ahead and 
I just want this is Dennis again. I'm sorry. Um, I wanted to say we didn't put this within the documentary, but uh, many of the people ran the fences over. So they would come up to a gate. The man, a young man would be there with an M16 and he'd say, you can't come in there. And there would be fire raging on the site. And the fireman said, I mean, this is, we kind of laugh about this. He says, I'm going to get my, my special key. And he'd get, his, he'd get in the truck and ram the gate and drive in. So there was, there was confrontations like that that went on. It just didn't fit within the, uh, what we were trying to accomplish. Wow. Um, so, and yeah, that happened more than once. Yeah, there was a, a news reporters that arrived and uh, their cameras were confiscated and the film, the old fashioned film, uh, taken out very dramatically exposing the film. Uh, and then people that went out there to film it said they were told, don't film the rocket launch complexes, just the fire and the ground. So, yeah, there was, there was lots of incidences. I was involved in one uh, where I got a ride in uh, after I had been with the um, burned dozer operator. I got a ride back in. Uh, with some young airmen security with on a jeep they had um, m16s and and handguns uh, and they were drawn wow <laughs> that's that's amazing and so yeah I, i'm just thinking of like the conflict that the underlying tension that you guys were going through and the the sensitivity and just the absolute you know you know the the deadly fire i i'm going this is like sounds more like a a blockbuster movie um you know thing that's going on it it's just and it's amazing because it's all true um that that just blows my mind um what uh, did after the fire, did you guys have any like sort of special briefings about, you know, you're not supposed to talk about these certain things or, you know, uh, anything like that? Or was it, you know, you guys just kind of you know, learned from the lessons of, of the fire? Uh, this is Joe again. I'll just say after the fire, um, there was some newspaper articles, but um, um, my agency, uh, I never saw, heard anything. Nobody even asked me what happened in when I was in the ambulance. Uh, they didn't even know. I don't think they cared. I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was the times or maybe that people just wanted to be quiet about it, uh, you know, because of the sensitivity of the people who were killed. Mm. Um, there was a report by a battalion chief, very well done, but I never saw it until many, many years later. Dennis might have more information on that. Well, um, what, I guess what I was going to say was that uh, from my perspective, um, you know, the, the rain had come and we were, both Joe and I were brought over to Fire Station 5 had breakfast. And, uh, you know, Joe gave you his answer. That was it for me. That was, there was nothing more to be said till 2015. Or actually, that that run-in with that person maybe in 2010 that said me said to me that the event never occurred. Wow! So there there was no anything, and there was no follow-up. I don't think any of the firemen, you know, were talked to about what they had saw and witnessed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know part of us interviewing them brought a lot of that back because it's been kept in their minds, you know, yeah. for some you know 40 some odd years. And I think it applies both to Joe and I. We both kind of laugh at ourselves but i think we both share a little bit of that ptsd as well mm-hmm. um because you can't go through something like that without an impact in you sure um, well so. so now kind of to to close things up um uh, what is what does this documentary mean to you guys i mean on a personal level what does it mean to you and and what are your hopes for it in the future what where do you hope that it goes who do you hope sees and who do you hope it helps this is, this is Dennis, because this has been my primary motivator for the last five years that I've worked on it. So, you know, it it's kind of, it, it's forgotten about. It's it's not dealt with. And I have made a personal goal to, to bring it as far as I possibly can in any way that I can so that the story um, is told outside of the communities. You know, the the military the air force base has actually learned from their mistakes created the hot shots but there's few people in the town that i live in lompoc that know that this happened 
Um, none of the communities know about this fire per se. And so my goal, and, and that's been my goal for five years now, and it looks like a few, hopefully a few more years, is to keep pushing this story to get it way beyond the boundaries of um, our community. And hence the use of film to do that. And that was part of my motivation to connect with Chris, because when Joe and I talked initially, we knew his book wasn't going to do it because people don't read anymore. They watch movies. They watch film. And so we wanted to do a film and, you know, and again, serendipity brought me and Chris together. So, um, you know, it went from there. And this is Chris. I'll just add in. So to answer your first question, Daniel, for me personally, this film is just, it's a cautionary tale though. It's set in 1977. Uh, this fire in and of itself was a real benchmark in the modern era and how fires were changing how wind-driven fires were changing, how climate affects fire, how man-made conditions such as utilities affect fire. And so it's really important to study from that re in that regard. And again, just the cautionary tale in regards to PTSD, stress, and trauma in any type of line of work. Um, the, the USA Today released an incredible study in 2017 that showed that in the firefighting community, there were more deaths in that year by suicide than there were in the line mm -hmm. of duty. And so that speaks to work conditions that, according to that same report, just aren't being appropriately dealt with on the ends of mental health and, and health services. So we, we feel the documentary is important in that regard. And, and personally, I think it's become that way for all of us as well. But we want to, in terms of putting this out there, we're, we're attempting to show it at as many film festivals as we can currently, and we're looking to partner with fire education, fire agency entities to get them copies of this film. We just think there's an immense value in it from an educational standpoint so that, as we've all stated, events like this never occur again. Yeah, and this is Joe. I'll, I'll just piggyback on what Dennis and Chris said, uh, everything I agree with them. On a personal level, I, I think it's helped us that were there, the men and women who were there that experienced that day. It helps us to move on and uh, uh, understand it a little bit better. And uh, for the men who weren't interviewed uh, and, and that, because we can only interview so many in the film, I hope that they understand that we're thinking of them and all their their things there's still stuff to be learned about this fire uh and every uh, this is a miraculous moment to put it on film and i just want to say also that you know the vandenberg fire department has gotten awards in the department of defense the number one fire department they have a wildland fire uh section that is unbelievable they're involved in all the major fires here at vandenberg or here in california working with the Forest Service and CAL FIRE, Santa Barbara County, and all the agencies. There's so much that has been learned by these fires and uh, attributed to the new way to fight some of them. I, the fires are getting bigger, and there's many reasons why, but um, the training is a big portion of why we're, uh, safety precautions are, are so important to all the firefighters out there. Yeah, that that's that's amazing. I wanted to say one more thing. Our fire, our 1977 fire, was the catalyst for Vandenberg to create Hot Shots to become the program that they are. Um, so you know, at the very end of this, we we have seen that good came from this fire. Again, on the installation, not outside of the installation. Um, and so the, you know, uh, the hotshot crews or, you know, I've, I've seen, I've had a fire close to my house and I've watched Vandenberg fire, you know, go up the hotshots go up the hill and put the fire out by my house. So, you know, I'm very appreciative of them. Yeah, that's, that's very, very amazing that things changed because of the fire back then. But now, you know, 
40 year plus years later, uh, you guys are still making changes, I think, that are going to be impacting the community and those that were involved. So um, I just want to say thank you guys for for really putting together a, a powerful piece and um, everything that you guys did. Where can we see the movie next? Where can we get more information if people want to look it up? And, and what can they what can they do to connect with you guys? Well, the film is currently on a streaming platform called The Liftoff Sessions, which is a platform out of the United Kingdom, uh, and it's sponsored by Pinewood Studios near London, where they make all those James Bond films. And the film will also be appearing at this year's San Luis Obispo International Film Festival, and it will be appearing at the NewsFest True Stories Festival as well. And once we get through these pandemic conditions, we're hoping to do a whole spate of in-person local screenings of the film, which I think is what we'd all really like to be doing right now anyways. Yeah. Oh, believe me. So no, we would, and and as the Central Coast Film Society, we'd love to be able to host a screening too with you guys, um, because that would be absolutely fantastic to. to do that. We'd love Absolutely. to that. All right. Well, gentlemen, again, thank you so much for your time. And, and thank you so much for everything that you put into this movie. Um, it really has a, a huge heart and soul to it. Um, and, and it's just amazing work. So congratulations, guys. Um, well done. And, and thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Daniel. We're big fans of what you're doing. Thank you. <laughs> thank, we are fans of yours. Thank you, guys, so thank much. You. Thank you. Okay. All right. And that's going to be a wrap on this edition of Take 18. This has been a production of the Central Coast Film Society, a 501c3 organization, which means we can't make this show or anything that we do without your generous support. So please help make a difference and keep these podcasts going and everything that we do going by uh, making a donation. You can purchase a membership or just simply attend one of our events whenever we are able to do that. Visit our website, centralcoastfilmsociety.org, for more information or sign up for a newsletter or simply just follow us on social media. That's really easy and fun. I also want to thank you guys for listening all the way to the end. But of course, more importantly, I want to thank our special guests that we had today. Um, Chris, Dennis, and Joe, you guys are amazing. Uh, Thank you so much for everything you guys do. Really, really awesome. Um, So uh, thank you again for you guys listening here all the way to the end. I thank you all for the support that you have shown us. Uh, I hope you enjoyed this episode. And that's a take.